Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to Hope for Today. My name is Naja E. Brown, your host, and we thank you for your support and participation. Hope for Today is an outreach program of Yield to the King Ministry, and our hope and prayer for our listening audience all over the world is that you hear something that is encouraging, life-altering, or prompting you to study the Word of God. We welcome your comments anytime and you can reach us through our website at yield to the king org. well welcome to today's episode entitled real talk what's going on part two so we're excited and on air with us today is pastor lonnie arnold and pastor lonnie it's you and i today the fellows uh, elder homer and watchman uh, Stephen had conflicts with their schedule, so this is what God planned for us, and we are just going to go with it. And amen. I want to thank you. Amen. Yes. I want to thank you for your time and willingness, though, to join us today and to share your biblical perspective on what's going on. I know you're busy, and I so appreciate you um, making yourself available for this, this episode today. And I'm really excited about how we're going to unpack how Christians should respond to what's going on today. And so with that, I'm going to let you introduce yourself to our listening audience and tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, My name is Lonnie Arnold. I'm the assistant pastor at New Salem Baptist Church. I've been in the ministry for close to 40 years now and uh, have a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the life-changing influence that it has on individuals. Um, I'm married for 40 years, uh, have nine children, and excited to be here with you all today to talk about this important topic. Wow, has it been 40 years (laughs) that you guys have been married? (laughs) Good good grief. And nine kids, and and didn't say anything about the homeschooling, but maybe that's another episode, huh? There you go. There you go. Oh, oh, okay. Well, before we get into our discussion for today, I want to take us back in history. I want to take us back to August 28th, 1963, 57 years ago. We're going to listen to Martin Luther King Jr.'s infamous speech, I Have a Dream. He spoke to a massive group of civil rights marchers gathered around the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. So we're going to listen to his speech, and then we'll have our talk. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. 
five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land. And so we've come here today to dramatize a shameful condition. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men as well as white men, would be guaranteed the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on this promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given the Negro people a bad check, a check which has come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and the security of justice. have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time 
to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time to make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summer of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hoped that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content, will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. There will be neither rest nor tranquility in America until the Negro has granted his citizenship rights. The whirlwinds of revolt will continue to shake the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. But that is something that I must say to my people who stand on the warm threshold which leads into the palace of justice. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. We must fail to conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soul force. The marvelous new militancy, which has engulfed the Negro community, must not lead us to a distrust of all white people. For many of our white brothers, as evidenced by their presence here today, have come to realize that their destiny is They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound to our freedom. We cannot walk alone. As we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? 
We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of all the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We can never be satisfied. As long as our body is heavy with the fatigue of travel, cannot gain lodging in the motels of the highways and the hotels of the city. We cannot be satisfied as long as a Negro in Mississippi cannot vote and a Negro in New York believes he has nothing for which to vote. No, no, we are not satisfied and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I'm not my unmindful that some of you have come here out of great trials and tribulations. Some of you have come fresh from narrow jail cells. Some of you have come from areas where your quest for freedom left you battered by the storms of persecution and staggered by the winds of police brutality. You have been the veterans of creative suffering. Continue to work with the faith that unearned suffering is redemptive. Go back to Mississippi. Go back to Alabama. Go back to South Carolina. Go back to Georgia. Go back to Louisiana. Go back to the slums and ghettos of our northern cities, knowing that somehow this situation can and will be changed. Let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friend, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow. I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children 
will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. And the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith. We will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day... This will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom reign. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom reign. From the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, let freedom reign. From the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado, let freedom reign. From the curvaceous slopes of California, but not only that, let freedom reign. From Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring, and when this happens, when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That's profound, 57 years later, isn't it? 
Oh, yes, it is. A powerful, powerful message. Mm, mm. When I listened to it to prepare for the uh, the episode, the podcast, it almost brought tears to my eyes because I was thinking, mm. I don't know, I wasn't old enough to really remember the speech. It wasn't until later probably that I was focused on Dr. Martin Luther King when he was shot in 1968. But, um, yeah, I was saying, but it reminded me that the civil rights movement of the you know, 50s, 60s, came out of the church, came out of the church, came out Mm -hmm. of and from the believers. We carried this message into the streets, and we have made progress. We have made progress. So what are your thoughts after listening to that? What what comes to mind for you, Pastor Lonnie? Well, you know, I I think one of the profound things that hits me is that, we stand on the shoulders of people who have fought a battle uh, in a very noble way, uh, mm. in a very God-honoring way. You know, when he uh, advocated that you know, we protest that um, in a nonviolent way, mm-hmm. and that we use love to overcome evil, um, it, it just it's a reminder of keeping our focus on the centrality of God's love, even, Uh even when fighting injustice, you know, um, when, when, when somebody has offended us, there's a temptation uh, to give in to the impulse to hate. Uh And one of the things Uh that Martin Luther King Jr. was so profoundly eloquent about was we have to we have to fight this battle with love. We we can't uh-huh. fight this battle with hatred or anger. Um, we have to move forward with a with the idea that we're going to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. And that didn't mean uh-huh. not to confront evil, the evil that was present in racism. But it was uh, he had a, a very clear focus on. Uh, over, overcoming evil with good, and as a result of that, winning the person who might be the oppressor. Mhm, mhm. That's good. That's good. Yeah, he spoke of brotherhood. He spoke. He broke it down: black, white, Jews, Gentile, Catholics, yeah. and Protestants. You know that that I mean right. that covers everything. Now we've got these new fangled phrases now, you know, moving from the 50s, 60s, 70s. So in the in the 70s, we were black. So we're no longer Negro, right? We were black. And then somehow mm-hmm. we morphed into African-Americans. And now there's this new acronym that's out that everybody's using, and that's BIPOC. B-I-P is in Paul, O-C is in cat, BIPOC. So it's black, indigenous, people of color. But he did mention people of color in his speech. He did. Mm-hmm. So now there's this this massive uprising of a grouping of people, and and it's not just singularly about uh, black people. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we're still in the mix. We're still in the mix. But I'm just thinking, gosh, you know, 57 years ago. So I have a few questions that I just want to ask us. We can just kind of respond yes or no or however we want to, but this is in uh, relation to what we just listened to, the I Have a Dream speech. So do you think black America is living out 
Dr. Martin Luther King dream his his dream today? Do you think that that we're living that out, and specifically that uh, people are being judged by the content of their character as opposed to the color of their skin? I, I think the answer is yes and no. Um, uh-huh. We we've made we've made progress. Uh, there, yes. There's no doubt, you know, that what Martin Luther King and the civil rights leaders of his day, the work that they did, um, the issues that they pushed, that they that that we enjoy uh, tremendous um, benefits because of the work that they did, and in many ways we're we're not grappling with some of these same identical things that they were dealing with. Um, you know, we're no longer living in a society where there is legalized segregation. And that, that, mm-hmm. that's a huge change uh, between then and now. And so in one sense, yes, we are living uh, those things out there. There are many places where uh, blacks, African-Americans have risen um, to positions of power, uh, positions mm-hmm. of influence. There's been economic growth. And th- so, so there's been some tremendous progress made. And yet at the same yeah. time, and, and I think this is, I think this is where um, we struggle at the same time. Uh, racism is still real. It's still alive. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in many ways, it's just as vicious but it's many ways more subtle than it has been in the past Um, where in Martin Luther King Jr.'s day, it was blatant. It was uh, legalized. It was out in your face where Mm -hmm. now it's often hidden in the institutions uh, of, of our country. And so consequently um, in in one sense, I, I describe it as, um, we've we've written racism out of our laws, and so if uh-huh. we look on paper, we're not a racist country. But in our practices, we we still have very strong elements of st- systemic racism impacting blacks and minorities today. And I think I think part of our challenge now is to explore those systems where the racism is deeply embedded and, and begin to dissect uh, where it is and, and begin to dismantle it or. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's good. It's, it's, the narrative has changed, which Mm -hmm. is a good in terms of documentation of racism and the ill treatment of black people, but the practice still exists. Uh, and so exactly. that's what we are, uh, that's what we're faced with even today in, in, in 2020. So I, I wanted to go back and just kind of highlight some of the progress that we've made. So since his speech in 1963, so mm-hmm. uh, we have the, the uh, voters, uh, actually, it was the Civil Rights Act in 1964, and then we had the voters' uh, right 
Act in 1965. And then there's some other things that happened that, that are on this timeline, too. But I just want to highlight. And then in 1967, uh, I think it was, uh, well, we had the Fair Housing Act in 1968. So we've made progress. There's been some progress, legislative progress. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. And then uh, people, like you said, were starting to rise to positions of power. Shirley Chisholm ran for president in 1972. That was huge for our history timeline. And then uh, we can move on forward. We had uh, Colin Powell, who was, you know, Secretary of State. And then we move on into uh, President Obama. So, uh, we've made some progress. We've made some progress, but we still have a lot of work to do, a lot of work to do. And we can't forget mm-hmm. um, the role of the church in this work that needs to, to take place. So let's talk about racism. You, you, you mentioned it, and we know it's real. We know that there's um, systemic racism, institutionalized racism. But how do the symptoms of racism, how have they shown up in America? So, you know, we're talking, this is, this is real talk. So let's just talk a little bit about, we don't have to spend a lot of time, but we can just talk a little bit about how it's shown up. So one way that I can think of that it continues to show up, and it has continued to show up throughout history, and that is the brutality, you know, of the dominant the dominant society, so we can go all the way back, you know, we, we can even, you know, not, we don't even have to go back to the fact that it was the, the colonizers who went to Africa and stole people from the native country and brought them over to America. But let's just move forward a little bit and start talking about the real brutality. A lot of brutality happened during slavery. Families were separated, women were raped, you know, people were killed. Um, but let's move into the whole Ku Klux Klan, KKK movement and the lynching. And then Dr. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King mentioned in his dream how there was police brutality going on then, and there's a lot of pictures. I remember seeing pictures, um, you know, the, the uh, fire hoses, the, the dogs, the nightsticks, the police, you know, the marches that were going on for civil rights and how they were met with this opposition, this fierce opposition, when they started to integrate the schools after Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, you know, I remember the picture of the the, the kids who were uh, bold enough to say, okay, I'm going to go to this all-white school, and the the community was jeering at them and spitting at them and blocking them, but the marshal uh, the martial law was called in, and they escorted the students into the school. And a few of them are still living to this day. I don't have the details about that, but I can definitely see the, the picture. And so, and then the, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, you know, where the four uh, little girls, uh, you know, were injured, killed. And so we've, we've had this, this central theme that has gone on. Uh, and that's just one one way that it seems to be targeted uh, because of uh, who th- this narrative that's been written about black people, who others think we are, and uh, so so what it, what how do you how would you say or describe or share with us how the symptoms of racism have shown up in America? You know, well, if I I, I would go back to. Uh, our white founding fathers. I, I would begin okay. there. 
um, okay. because one of the I think one of the things that is really hard for white Americans to understand <clears throat> is this hard truth that our white founding fathers came to America with some incredibly and truly noble ideas about freedom and citizens' rights. And at the same Uh time, they saw themselves superior to blacks and other minorities. They they came um, from Britain with Uh a white supremacist attitude toward minorities. And, and so usually when we talk about white supremacy, we, we think about the KKK or other white supremacist groups, but that's not where it started. It started when they hit this shore. And, okay. And, and so they, they came with that mentality already ingrained in them, and they lived uh, with this contradiction inside of them. And men, many of them, being Christians, on, on one hand, were people who spoke about the sovereignty of God, spoke about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and at the same time, had this spiritual blind spot that was so significant that this blind spot gave birth to slavery being accept, an acceptable practice in America. So mm-hmm. the, the fruit of that was Americans participating, like you said, in this brutality of the slave trade. I mean, it's easy for someone in the 21st century to try to take race, the subject of racism as a soundbite um, in contrast to s- slowing down. And, and really delving into what was really going on, you know, because uh-huh. the, the reality is many Americans, particularly white Americans, uh, don't want to face the horrors of slavery and segregation under Jim Crow and uh-huh. a history of lynchings in America. I mean, and, and, and I understand partially why? Because they don't want to be associated with it. And it's horrifying to dig into the types of brutalities that were committed against African Americans, against Native Americans and others uh, throughout American history. But, but what was driving that was this mentality of whites being superior to minorities. And, and so... So when you talk about slavery and you talk about the brutality that went on there, I mean, there's the physical brutality that happened, you know, Uh the the beatings, the lynchings, um, mutilating of bodies, raping of women, like you said, breaking up of families, um, you know, taking and abusing young children, enslaving young children, treating people as if they were no more than animals. And so Mm -hmm. that, you know, and to, and to visualize that or to read about that in detailed accounts of what was really going on is really, is really disturbing to any 
human who's sensitive to the suffering of other people. And so I can understand why people, you know, they, they really, can't we just move on? You know, can't we, mm-hmm. can we get past all this and, and, and just kind of work on the future? But, but part of this, part of the necessity of understanding the history and the brutality that went on is that you can't understand what's going on in the hearts and in the psyche of black people today without knowing where we have come from. Um, Uh And in many ways, you know, I mean, people obviously know, yes, slavery existed and, and, you know, and yeah, there was an era of segregation and they can talk about it theoretically uh, or as a historical uh, subject to, to know something about, for black people, it shapes uh-huh. us because there's something that we have ingrained in us. There's a fight that we have ingrained in us because our society still today tells us we're less than. There's uh-huh. a narrative that still exists today that if there's a problem that shows up in the community, it's probably the black people that caused it. If, mm-hmm, if there's a fight mm-hmm. between a white person and a black person, obviously the black person was wrong. There's a narrative mm-hmm. uh, that police uh, struggle with in terms of, you know, if I, if, if I pull somebody over who's black, he's probably got drugs in the car, or I need to take this a little further than I normally would. And that's why enforcement actions against African-Americans is proportionately higher than it is against whites. It's because there's uh-huh. a narrative not, o- not only ingrained in us, but there's also a narrative ingrained in our white brothers and sisters as well. The challenge is many of them don't know that it's been ingrained in them. It's just the right. norm. In their mind, it's the right. normal way of thinking about people of color. And, and so when we, when we address this subject of racism, you know, I, I read in a book uh, quite a while ago that uh-huh. you can't improve, you prove something without disturbing something, you know. And so if you're going to make any improvement in any area of life or you're going to have to disturb something. And so when we come to this issue of racism, and we talk about improving relationships in America across racial lines between black and white or white and Hispanic or white and Native, Native American, it means we're going to have to disturb something. And we're going to have to disturb the comfort that we want, the emotional uh, comfort that we want, where we don't want our worldview disturbed. But we have to disturb that. We have to, we have to, we have to attack that narrative, and do it in love. But we have to attack uh-huh. that that false narrative in order to create it. So, when we look at slavery, we look at segregation um, during the Jim Crow era. Um, when we look at the history of lynchings, uh, the Equal Justice Initiative. Uh, that many people are familiar with, um, run by Brian Stevenson, has documented that there were 
at least 4,075 documented lynchings of African Americans in America between 1877 and 1950. That's a lot of people that, that were lynched. That's and a it, lot. And it, mm. and it, yeah, and it, and it lets you mm. know that the, that that this kind of violence towards African Americans were, were not just isolated pockets a little bit here and a little bit there. It it was the normative culture of white America. Um, and so, you know, and most of us have seen pictures in history books um, where, you know, there's, there's a picture of a person being lynched and then there's there's a, a crowd of white people surrounded who all the whole community came out to see uh-huh. this person get lynched. They would uh-huh. it would be um, advertised in the paper. We're going to lynch John, you know, uh-huh. on Saturday uh-huh. and they they advertise it so everybody could come out. It, it was it was a community event that was celebrated. And so when when myself as a black person sees something like that, it makes me wonder how many of those people are still around uh-huh. and am I safe? And, and the reality is that there still is a degree of unsafeness for black uh-huh. people in America. And uh-huh. it's, you know, but as I, as I alluded to before, a lot of it is embedded in systems now where it so it's not blatant and and it and it's it it can be justified as uh crime uh crime enforcement uh-huh and you know we we just had a shooting here recently in uh wolf city texas of a young man uh 32 years old uh jonathan price who was killed by a police uh-huh. officer because uh-huh. he and the, the the crazy thing about it is he was intervening as a as a concerned citizen in a domestic violence situation that was happening out in public and when the police showed up they assumed that he was the problem and ended up killing him and so there's a reality that black people are not safe that there still is a huge, I mean, we wouldn't call that a lynching, but in essence, that was a lynching. That's a 21st century lynching. That's what I've been saying with all these shootings, 21st century lynching. And instead of a rope, they're using a gun. Go ahead. Go ahead, Pastor Lonnie. No, you're, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, and when, and, and when I bring these kinds of things out, I'm not bringing them out in hostility towards my white brothers and sisters. Uh I'm bringing Uh them out uh, as a reality of where we are. All of us need to be called to live out what Martin Luther King was talking about in that speech. We need to make changes and we need to Uh have the courage to explore why are the things happening that are happening? What, what are the things that are broken that, that need to be fixed? Where are the systemic problems and what are the underlying issues that need to be addressed? It's so easy to, you know, to demonize 
people who have been killed by police. And that's happened in the past with some of the other black people who have been uh, killed uh, illegitimately. You know, then they'll, they'll go, they'll go back in their past and they'll dig stuff up. Well, he did this and he did this in the past and he did that. Well, he was a criminal. That doesn't justify uh, being killed because you have something bad in your past. You see, because the truth is, we all have something bad in our past. We're all sinners, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And and the fact that I may have made mistakes in the past doesn't justify somebody white taking my life. And so we we have to face this issue with really with a moral courage to say, you know what, this might be somewhat of a painful process to go through, to look back and to identify, not only look back into our history, but to identify currently what are the things that are still in place that are um, systemic forms of injustice or oppression Uh against African Americans or people of color. And I'll I'll pause right there because I could keep going on and on. Well, no, I I want you to keep going on. That's good, but the, the, this 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 okay. is this is a tall this is a tall order. I mean, I I yes. I am with you, but it's a tall order. Uh, and and the reason I say that is because it just seems as though that the fight continues, or the battle continues, or the desire to move things forward is coming from. I don't want to just say black people because that's not true because, you know, Martin Luther King mentioned mm-hmm. in his speech that, you know, the, 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 our white brothers are with us because, and it's evidence yes. of them being here with them on that day, August 28, 1963. Yes. But yes. it just seems like we didn't, I'm saying we now, I'm, I'm just, just putting it out there so, so that you can respond. We didn't ask for this. We didn't bargain for this. You know, there was no mm-hmm. real true benefit in allowing ourselves to be put in this position. And then it just seems like we kind of figured it out. I'm saying we, you know, we figured out what needs to happen. We know, we know what happened. We know what's going on. Really, it's a spiritual warfare. We know that the enemy is, is, mm-hmm. has everything to do with this division. Really, we can just put right. that out there. So the effort, uh, you know, to to desegregate, the effort to embrace brotherhood, the effort to, you know, to, 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 to look at all people as brothers and sisters, who is it? Who, it, it seems like it's, it's coming from the people who, who have been victimized, you know, it seems like it's coming right. from the people who have been the, have, have, have gotten the short end of the stick, who are the, who are the, the, the you know, they've received the brunt of this miss and ill treatment. So, what what do you do? What do you do with that? I, I you know, and I get it. It's a spiritual warfare. We're not. It's it, you know, it's principalities. It's not flesh and blood. And I, and I get that. Right. But for the yeah. for the masses, for the people who are listening, it's okay. This is what we need to do. This is what we know we should do. This is what God is calling us to do. But yet and still, you have a group of people who have victimized not only black people but natives. You know, the indigenous people. Now there's a war out on immigrants. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. When is when is their time going to come for them to to look at? Okay, what am I going to do with my blind spot? How am I going to acknowledge this? When am I going to start calling 
people my brothers and sisters and stop, you know, rename them as brothers and sisters and stop calling them, you know, and dehumanizing them with these with these labels and these tags. So I'll let you respond to that. Yeah, so, so um, you know, you said this was a spiritual warfare, and I agree it with is. you 100%. And so part, part of this is um, I, I believe it's an unrealistic expectation to ex- the unbelieving world to come uh-huh. up with a solution to the race problem because – you know, I mean, what, what, what we see going on in our society right now is we see a lot of hostility between um, black and white. And a lot of this is being fueled by what we see happening between uh, law enforcement and the black community. With, with mm-hmm. every time one of these killings happens, uh, the tension rises. You know, as I, as I read over the killing of Jonathan Price is just kind of like, again, you've got to be kidding me. You know, (laughs) when is this going to stop? You know, and, and when you, and when you read the background of this young man, he, you know, he was an upstanding young man. He was a mentor. He was, he, I mean, he was a pillar in the community at a very young age. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, the police officer who rolled up on this situation responded to this situation somehow in his mind was able to justify narrowing his focus on the black man and, and, and tased him and then shot him three times. Now Mm. there, it was unjustified and to the credit of uh, the Texas Rangers who were doing the investigation on this, they arrested the police officer and are charging him with murder. So, so there is, um, in the nation, there is an effort between white and black to, to make progress. The challenge uh-huh. is you can't legislate love. That's because at, 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 the, at the core of this problem is a failure for people to love their neighbors like they love themselves. And mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. each other as image bearers of God, equal image bearers of God. And yeah. so, so the, the church is the only one who has this message of reconciliation. Now, when, it, when I say that, I don't mean that unbelievers can't positively contribute to making progress here in America. Uh, there has, like you pointed out earlier, there have been positive legislative actions that have been done that have made things better. Uh, there are policies within companies and, and agencies that have made improvements. Those kinds of things are good things, but they don't get at the heart of the issue. You know, Jesus, Jesus said that all the sin that comes out of us, everything that comes mm-hmm. out of us mm-hmm. is a heart issue. And so consequently, racism is a sin of the heart. It says something, racism says something about how I see myself in comparison to those around me. And so in America's history, those who have been racist in the white community have seen themselves as superior 
to blacks and other minorities. And that superiority Mm -hmm. in their mind has justified ill treatment of those who are not like them. So when we, when we talk about, you know, how do, how do we move forward on this whole Mm -hmm. issue? Um, I say we have to go to the church and we have to, we have to say we we're the ones who have the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the life transforming message that enables people to see themselves the way that God designed them to see themselves. And it equips us then, when I see myself the way God wants me to see myself, I begin to have a clearer vision and a deeper appreciation for every single individual on the earth. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter their color, it doesn't matter their gender. It, every person is an image bearer of God. And that alone, being an image bearer of God, is the chief reason in the Bible why we are to honor one another, Mm -hmm. that we are to live in honor to one another. Uh, Paul says in Romans chapter 13, he says, Owe no man anything except the Mm debt of love. Love. Mm -hmm. But we're supposed to have this debt of love. So I owe my fellow man, black, white, uh, Japanese, Chinese, Native American, I owe every fellow man debt of love. And we all mm-hmm. owe that to each other. That's what God calls us to. Our struggle with this whole racism issue is if we try to focus on legislation and policies, the people who are racist can always find a loophole in the system just kind of like the tax laws. There's always a way uh-huh. around, you know. Uh-huh. I mean, people find uh-huh. a way not to pay taxes because there's, all, there's a loophole in the system. And, and the same is true in any sort of legislation where if you uh-huh. don't want to obey a certain law or you, you'll find another way. Okay, well, maybe I can't hit you right now out in front in public, but I can hit you another way. Um, uh-huh. And, and so being able to uh, get to the heart of the issue and say, okay, we, as Christians, we have to begin targeting the heart, and we have to take this conversation down a different road than what the world is going to take, you know, is going to take. Uh-huh. I mean, when, when we look now and we see the violence in our streets that's happening, it's not – it's, it's an understood response, but it's not a right response. Mm-hmm. We can understand mm-hmm. people being angry and wanting to see systems change, but burning down somebody's business or somebody's home in, as an expression of anger to, to change things is not the right way to go about this. And so mm-hmm. what we have to do is we, we have to so on a, on a on a personal level, we've got to engage each other in conversation. We've got to talk this out. And 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 the the one of the beautiful things that is happening, I believe, in the church right killings, unfortunately, through this these these horrific incidents, is uh-huh. causing 
Christians, white and black, to start waking up. And, and, and it's, this is undeniable. I mean, the evidence is undeniable that we're, we're having shooting after shooting after shooting. And mm-hmm. the reality of the racism and how deeply embedded it is in our systems is, is staring us right in the face. And so there mm-hmm. are Christians in the white community who are saying, what do we do? How do we help? And, but we've got to bridge this gap. We've got, to, we've got to be talking to each other and educating each other. And, and part, of, part of this is it's a hard discussion to have because yeah. we, we are so steeped in political thought and what I call political idolatry in the church. Mm-hmm. For, those, for, for, my, for my brothers and sisters who lean politically right, it's hard for them to hear uh, the reality of racism and, and to spend a significant amount of time in our world of suffering as black people. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a hard thing to do. And so, but that needs to happen. And for mm-hmm. those of our brothers and sisters who lean left, um, you know, they they have their solutions that they want to employ politically and and so the church is divided on this issue and and really what we have to do is we have to call people back to the gospel and say look you need to you need to take off your political clothes and i don't mm-hmm. when I, when i say that i don't mean don't be politically involved i don't mean mm-hmm. that you shouldn't vote i don't you know i'm not saying that at all what i'm saying is that our faith must drive our agenda. Jesus speaking to us through his word, Moses speaking to us through the word of God, Paul speaking to us through the word of God has to be mm-hmm. the one we turn to. You know, if, if, if I'm turning to my, my favorite news site and I'm listening to mm-hmm. my favorite news commentator or I'm listening to my favorite politician, then I'm making a bold accusation against my Christian brothers and sisters on the right and on the left, that, that, that we are committing idolatry. Because if, if we are not going to the scriptures and going to the gospel from Genesis to Revelation and saying, God, how do you want us to understand this race issue and how do you want us to respond to it? If we're not doing that, then somebody else has become the main voice in our lives. Okay. And, and mm-hmm. we, 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 we have to take off those political clothes and, and remember that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that, that his righteousness, as we flesh that out, is going to call us to live a different way than the world is going to respond to this issue of racism. So one of the hard things that I think um, my, my, my white brothers and sisters, like I said, are confronted with is coming into our world, coming into the world of African Americans. Uh, for example, when I when I read about Jonathan Price, I, I I'm grieving. Um, mm-hmm. Here here's another young man who is trying to do the right thing, and he didn't go home that night. Why? Because of the color of his skin, and because of the assumption 
that he was the problem. Now, the, the reality is because of who I am, if I saw a guy beating up a woman at the gas station like Jonathan Price uh-huh. did, I would intervene uh-huh. too. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and at that particular moment, I'm putting my own life at risk not you know not only with the guy that I might be trying to to stop in terms of uh-huh. assaulting a woman but I'm also at risk from the police who show up and and that mm-hmm. shouldn't be the case and so understanding our world and the you know our history feeds into what's going on today there's not well that ha- you know racism happened way back then Slavery was way back then. Segregation was way back then. And it doesn't have any bearing on today. And and some people don't see the connection. And so one of the things that I encourage um, my white brothers and sisters to do with my black brothers and sisters as well is we have to read and we have to educate ourselves. And, mm-hmm. and so there's, there's, there's a variety of books out there that, I think are incredibly useful in helping people to identify the systemic racism. Uh, one of them is called the color of law mm-hmm. by Richard Rothstein. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, it, the history of redlining in America where um, African-Americans were not allowed to live near white people. And what, what was the, what was the fallout of that? But, but not only the fallout back then, how has that impacted black America today? And there's another book, Michelle Alexander called the new Jim Crow. Uh And she, what she's doing is critiquing the criminal justice system. Uh, There's another one that I'm, I'm reading through right now called convicting the innocent by Stanley Cohen. Uh And, and this mm. one, it, it, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It really is gut-wrenching. But it's, it's talking about uh, how people end up on death row being innocent. And he's, he's documenting the, um, what's, what's the, the corrupt practices of mm. police and prosecutors and judges that allow that to happen. Um, and then there's another book uh, called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. And in his particular book, he's talking about how the church has participated in racism over, mm-hmm. over uh, the centuries in, here in America. So, I mean, mm-hmm. these, these are just four examples of books that mm-hmm. give some historical background on systemic racism. Also, they help us to understand how these things impact us today. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, when, and when people start to understand that, when they start to walk through that history, God starts connecting the dots in people's minds, and they begin to understand, oh, that's why you think the way you do. That's mm-hmm. why mm-hmm. you're extra careful when you go into a store, that you watch the way you walk. You, you know, you're making sure that it doesn't appear that you're putting something in your pockets that you shouldn't put in your pockets. There, there's a variety of habits that black people 
have cultivated over the years because they're survival mechanisms. And so for our white brothers and sisters in Christ, as they have a desire to this issue of racism, and I'm, and I'm so blessed because they're, I, I'm, I'm meeting a variety of our white brothers and sisters who want to help in this area of racism. They want to see the gospel influence not only the church, but the community. And one of the steps in order for that to happen is that they have to educate themselves because Mm -hmm. unfortunately they've been undereducated in the area of racism too. And so a lot of them are not um, unaware by choice. They, They are unaware because they have been undereducated. And now as these issues are coming forward, now they have to make a choice. Are you going to, are you going to walk in our shoes? Are you going to learn about where we're coming from? Um, are you going to learn about the history that has taken place that's impacted us, but not only impacted us, this history has impacted our white brothers and sisters as well. And they mm-hmm. have attitudes and perspectives on things that need to be changed, um, but they, they won't know that unless they understand historically how they got where they are. I'll stop right there. Okay, yeah, you covered a lot. You covered a lot. That's good. You mentioned something um, earlier when we were talking about love. Love is going to be the what's going to conquer this, this, this hatred and um, the, the division that, that's occurring because God is love. And so we've already established that the enemy has, has wedged this divide uh, very strategically. And so when people are going through things that don't feel good, uh, when they're victims, when they've had to deal with racism in many different ways, they justify sometimes um, drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred, and uh, mm-hmm. we need to move away from that. But you mentioned that you can't legislate love. So back mm-hmm. when I was doing my master's in uh, 2002 through 2004, master's in public administration, I was in a class, and it was all about public administration and, you know, laws and, you know, learning about the executive branch and all this other stuff that I thought I was interested in, but it drives me crazy now, right? <laughs> But I had a professor. <laughs> now nah, this is this is too much going on. <laughs> I had a professor because I used to I used to go head to toe with some of the discussions that we we would have, you know. And I remember we had this big discussion about Roe v. Wade, Roe versus versus mm. Wade, you know, the law that was passed mm-hmm. back in 1972. And I remember he made a statement. He said, "You can't legislate morality." Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And he said to me, you're coming from the position of a believer. So he kind of pulled me off to the side and went a little bit more in depth. Mm-hmm. He didn't front me out in front of the whole class, but he said, your mm-hmm. morality comes from God. Your your code of morality mm-hmm. is coming from God and the word of and the word of God that you believe in, which you, he says, yes. and I know you would say that it's the final authority in your life. And I said, you're absolutely right. He said, well, how are you going to legislate morality in someone who has no relationship with God? Mm. 
Mm. Ah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It Power, turned me around. Powerful. It caused, yeah, mm, caused me to look at things a little differently, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it didn't cause me to approach voting differently, but it caused me maybe to exercise a little more grace and mercy on myself and and, and others. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to say I hadn't heard it. I hadn't heard the you can't legislate love, but it made sense. And that popped mm-hmm. up. You can't legislate morality either. You said right. something else that um, that I wanted to touch on, and, and I think it probably left my mind, but I'm going to bring it up in, in a way that I think we can get back to what you said. And that is, um, have, have black Americans truly been granted unalienable rights? life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that's the question, happiness. That's the question. Mm -hmm. And you brought up the Mm -hmm. incident of the young man who was an innocent bystander, so to speak, in this altercation and ended up losing his life. Then you've got situations like Ahmaud Arbery, who's just Mm -hmm. peacefully jogging jogging through a community where it was deemed that he shouldn't have been. But these Mm -hmm. weren't law enforcement. these, these, These men were, well, they were past, former, uh, uh, you know, officers of the law, I believe the father was, maybe not the son, but you just had citizens who took mm-hmm. it upon themselves. So what, what, what's happening with, with, with that? I mean, you, 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 you went through racism in the beginning of it and the, the, you know, the systemic racism, institutionalized racism, and then we've got this, you know, what, what this less than theory about black people and other people of color, we've got that theory. Sometimes we internalize that and then we start mm-hmm. believing it ourselves, you know, so we have this internal uh, dialogue going on, this internal struggle going on. But, okay, so you now you've got citizens that are just, just renegades, that are just vigilanteism is going on. I mean, you with your police, Law enforcement, police background. What, 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 what do you, what do you, what would you, how would you comment about that? Because there's been a lot of shootings, you know, a lot of shootings. Yeah. You already said it's a 21st century way to lynch black men and women. Mm-hmm. Now women are in the mix mm-hmm. too. So, but what would you say about the whole vigilante thing and these citizens that are now taking up arms and uh, shooting people in the name of, yeah. in the name of what? Cloud boys, what? what yeah. In the name of what? What's happening here? Well, I, really, I don't think it's anything new. I mean, when when you trace our history in America, there's always been uh, a group of whether they were identified as a group or they were individuals who held a certain belief about black people and their role as white people being superior mm-hmm. to put black people in their place. So I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. this is anything new. I think what's happening is we as a country are focusing in on it with greater clarity now. I, I think part mm-hmm. of that is because of technology, because, you know, I mean, prior, I mean, you know, back in the day when we, had a television set and that was a television and a radio that was kind of the, and we only had three stations and that mm-hmm. was the extent of our, our, our technology. We didn't get exposed to everything that's going on in the volume that it's going on now. Um, right. Because I mean, every, everybody's got a cell phone. 
and mm-hmm. citizens are capturing. I mean, who who was it that, that the George Floyd situation to the surface? It was somebody with a cell phone. And, yeah. you know, and, and so what's happening is we're seeing more of what has been there all the time. Um, you know, and, and, and here, and here's, here's part of the, I think the struggle for us as blacks as well is to, is to remember with, with, with this flood of oppression that we're feeling with mm-hmm. every shooting that, that yeah. there are white people and black people and Hispanic people and Japanese people who are loving each other and caring for each other. And, and there are good things going on in our communities. There are tons of police officers out there who are doing the right thing, who are being kind and considerate to minorities, who are advocating for them, who are helping them. There are tons of uh, organizations or churches out there who are doing things, but a lot of those things aren't getting captured. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that I struggle with is kind of like I got to keep a balanced perspective on what's going on. I want I, I, I'm called to fight this racism mm-hmm. and call mm-hmm. I'm called to call the church back to the gospel, to apply the gospel to this situation. Um, and so when we see these things unfold, we do need to attack them. We do need to identify them. And I think what you're getting at in terms of, okay, what's going on? Well, I, I think part of it is in the midst of all of this stuff going on, there are, there are people who are racist, I mean, violently racist, who forget the world has cell phones in their hands. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 the, and the, the, there's usually a camera on every building somewhere. And, and, right, right. you know, I mean, there, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's, in one sense, it's kind of like somebody going into a, shor- a store to shoplift, you know, there's cameras in there, but mm-hmm. somehow mm-hmm. the deceptiveness of sin causes you to think that I can get away with this, that somehow I'm going to be able to pull this off. And, and because sin has this spiritually blinding effect it impacts our reasoning ability we don't we don't think logically when sin starts to dominate us Uh and so Uh people will engage in actions impulsively and 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 forget about the details of what what's going to happen after they um, fulfill this impulse you know as a police officer um so many situations where I'd have somebody sitting in the back seat of my car because they committed uh-huh. a crime. And I'd ask him, what were, what were you thinking? Uh-huh. And, and often they would say, I wasn't thinking. I was just, I was exactly. doing what I felt like doing. And so mm-hmm. a lot of times these acts of racism, people are not logically thinking through. I mean, something, um, a situation occurs, they find themselves in a situation and their uh, racism, their prejudice, their biases, their emotions in the moment kind of converge and they act. And mm-hmm. 
and 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 they end up, you know, in situations like you you brought out with uh, Amon Opry. You know, they these guys they were possessed with this black man, and uh, or obsessed with him, and they're acting impulsively, and those impulses. You know, I mean, most people would say when they're sitting in the police car or they're sitting in jail, if you had to do that all over again, would you do it? Mm -hmm. They'd say no. Why wouldn't you do it? Because I I don't want to end up here. But in that, in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the moment, you know, the thing that was beating in their heart was hatred towards someone Mm -hmm. and they acted it out. And that's why it's so incredibly important for us as Christians to approach this situation from a gospel perspective, because yeah. God is the one who changes people's hearts. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can, we can write laws, and this is what I meant by you can't legislate love. You know, I mean, we can, we can write laws all day long and, mm-hmm. and think we have covered every nuance of how racism might be expressed in our society and we still won't cover it because the the problem is it's a it's a heart problem first vertically toward god because people who practice racism first and foremost have a spiritual problem with god they do mm-hmm. not see themselves and they don't see themselves accurately before their creator they don't and Mm -hmm. and because of that they don't see themselves horizontally correctly toward their fellow man and so Mm -hmm. but god calls us to bring this message of salvation to to show us that we're all broken i mean i don't care how much money you got what the color of your skin is how much education you have, how much privilege you exercise or, or have, have experienced in your life, we are all broken before God. None of us yeah. um, can stand before God right, righteously in our own righteousness and be approved by God. And consequently, that, that's, the, that's the common denominator that we all share. And yet, because we serve a loving God, who sent his son into the world to die for us as our substitute draws us back into a relationship with him. But in doing that, he changes our hearts because we, in one sense, the the Bible talks about us as fallen people. We have hearts of stone. We're hard, hard hearted. And, Mm -hmm. and, and the atrocities that are associated with slavery segregation, lynchings, and the systemic racism, all of that is simply a manifestation of sin in humanity. And all of us have it. And so even as a black man, I, you know, I can't look at white people and say white people are the most evil people on the earth as Uh if they are more evil than I am because they're not. I, I'm right. just I, I I'm just as evil as the next person. White, black, doesn't matter the ethnicity. Um, mm-hmm. Apart from the grace of God, you don't want to be my friend be- because <laughs> I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm in it for me only. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm in it for me only. It's all about me. And that, so any, anybody who doesn't have a relationship with God is coming from that. And when I say that, I don't mean that there aren't people who act morally, who are unbelievers. I, I'm not saying that they're, you know, everybody's as bad as they could be. I'm, but what I'm saying is, by nature, we're selfish. And mm-hmm. that selfishness can escalate to a point where I'm so selfish that I will hurt you to get what I want. Mm-hmm. The gospel mm-hmm. co- comes in and it changes me. And it says, I will die for you to give you what you need. Mm-hmm. And that, mm-hmm. that, that's radically different. See, that, that's mm-hmm. what changes racism. That that if if I'm willing to die for you to give you what you need, if if black and white, in the context of the church, are saying that to each other, racism begins to disappear. Because mm-hmm. we're we're cultivating that habit of dying to ourselves in order to meet each other's need, and 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 mm-hmm. this is where, you know, Jesus calls us. To come die with him. He says, you know, he says, I want you to take up your cross daily and follow mm-hmm. me. But what, mm-hmm. well, what does that mean? Cross? Does that mean the burdens I'm bearing? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the burdens you're bearing. When he, when he talks about taking up our cross daily and follow him, he says, I want you to die to yourself every day. Mm-hmm. I want I, this. This is not about you. This is about me. I want you to die and then follow me. I want you to live your life according to my word so that you have the impact, the positive spiritual impact on the world as my representative in the world. And so, and Martin Luther King Jr. was such a a good example of that as he led the civil rights movement, because as he talked about loving people and not hating Mm -hmm. and not responding with hostility, he, he, was, he was really trying to flesh out the, the truth of the gospel of what Jesus calls us to. And so even yeah. though, I, you know, we want to fight against racism, I don't want to fight those who are white. I want to call them uh-huh. into fellowship. I want to end the fight through an embrace instead uh-huh. of ending the fight through, you know, me standing over you and having knocked you down. That, that, mm-hmm. That's not peace. And so Jesus is calling us to extend love and draw people into fellowship with him and with each other. And, and that's, you know, even, even with people who are hostile towards uh, African-Americans, we have to reach out to them. And that's exactly what Jesus did. I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus, you know, was constantly in the midst of people who didn't like him, but he won them through his love and through his sacrifice for them. Not only did they not like him, but they didn't like each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. Right. So, uh, yes. yeah, yes. this, uh, um, you know, a group of people rising themselves up above someone else is not new. I, I, I love this passage. It's Philippians one twenty one. It says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
So we do have to die to ourselves. So I just want, we're, we're, we're almost out of time. And I just want to ask you this, though. Uh, uh, we, we, we listened to Martin Luther King. We know that that was the result of a, a, a massive march um, on uh, uh, Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. Is there room or a call for the churches today in America to protest? I know you've mentioned that we need to be the ones to be the ambassadors of the message of reconciliation and the gospel of Jesus Christ. But is there a place for the churches in America today to protest? Very good question. Um, So I think I'm going to answer that two ways. Uh, Okay. The first I will... First, I will say, yes, that there is a time for the church to publicly protest and to exercise our rights as citizens to communicate to those in power Mm -hmm. about the injustice that is happening and needs to be resolved. In Acts chapter 25, um, there was an injustice that was that people were plotting against the apostle Paul. Uh, there were, there were Jews who wanted to kill him and mm-hmm. Paul was in custody at the time. And, um, and they were trying to get him moved from one location to another. And they were, they were plotting. They were going to, they were going to ambush him on the way. And mm-hmm. Paul realized what was, what was going on. Paul said, I appeal to Caesar because mm-hmm. Paul was a Roman citizen. And so as That's a Roman right. citizen, right. He, he had the right to appeal to Caesar, um, which meant that the Roman governor had to make sure he had safe passage to make his appeal to Caesar. So what Paul did mm-hmm. in that situation, there was an injustice that was happening and he used his citizenship to deal with that specific, to thwart that specific injustice. Mm-hmm. So the Bible gives mm-hmm. us a principle um, of using our citizenship to, uh, to deal with the injustices in our, in our, our country, our cities, our states. Um, mm-hmm. And then, and then there's, there's also precedents to defy the government when they are doing something that is they're trying to force us to do something in opposition to our faith. Uh, uh-huh. Acts chapter four, mm-hmm. Peter and John are told, look, you can't preach and talk about Jesus anymore. And Peter and John said, you, you make the judgment of whether you think it's right for us um, to listen to you or to listen to God, but we're going to speak about Christ because that's mm-hmm, what we've been called mm-hmm. to do. And so mm-hmm. here, here are two apostles, leaders of the church saying, sorry, we can't obey that rule. This goes mm-hmm. against our faith. Um, mm-hmm. There, there is a time to protest, but I think, I think the protesting, even when we do that, in First Corinthians chapter in verse thirty-one, it says, "Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God." So, right. as mm-hmm. Christians, when we protest, if we if we see a need 
to protest something that's happening in our society in order to bring this to the attention or of, of you know, the powers that be, we need to make a statement um, that we protest to the glory of God. So mm-hmm. a Christian faith-based protest is going to be along the line of what Martin Luther King Jr. did. It's going mm-hmm. to be nonviolent. It's going to mm-hmm. be orderly. And we're, we're, going, we're going to seek peace. doesn't mean we're not going to talk about the problem. But the goal is to establish a restoration to what's right. And, and we want to do that in a way that honors God on fire. We're not going to damage anybody's property. We're not going to attack people. We're not going to be profane toward the police. Um, because police, even if they've been, even if a police officer or a group of police officers have been wrong about something, we're not going to paint all police officers with that broad stroke, because in that sense, then we're being biased uh-huh. toward police uh-huh. officers and, 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 and judging them all by the acts of the few. And so we're not going to do that either. Um, you know, in it kind of in our current climate, it's like you're either on the side of the protesters or you're on the side of the police. Well, for the Christian, no, we're on the side of both. Mm-hmm. We're on the side mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. Um, we, we can love those people who have been oppressed, and we can love the group of people from whom where the oppressors have come from. We're, mm-hmm. we're supposed to love everybody. And, and we're doing mm-hmm. that, like you said, because of our relationship with God. And so, yes, yeah. there is definitely a, a place for protest. But, the, but here's the other thing that I would add to that. The church needs, first of all, needs to come together internally and exercise a higher degree of love and unity within the context of the church. So because a house divided against itself won't stand. And we're divided racially right now. And as a result of that, um, the strength of the church is weakened in the society because we're not working together. And, and as we grow closer together, then we need to ask the question, well, okay, as we grow closer together in unity, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, the Bible's in, in Micah chapter 6 and 8. He says, you know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do justice Mm. and love mercy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and walk humbly with Mm -hmm. your God. And so the church Mm -hmm. should be doing justice in the community as a unified body of believers who are looking out into the community, seeing racism, seeing other forms of oppression, identifying systemic racism and injustices, and the unified church should be attacking those things. Now, sometimes, sometimes on particular issues, it might take a long time to handle, to change something. Um, uh-huh. You know, for example, if you're talking about the criminal justice system, you know, and, and interrupting that pipeline from the schoolhouse to the jailhouse, you uh-huh. know, there are uh-huh. legis- legislative things that need to be done in order for there to be equity in the criminal justice system. So we can have Christians working on those kinds of things, but at the same time, 
other Christians need to be working on, you know what, we need to be mentoring these young uh, black children who are coming from single parent homes who are, you know, mom's doing all that she can do to, to make ends meet. And we need to, we need to be involved in nurturing and mentoring and helping so that at, on a relationship level, we're interrupting that pipeline from the schoolhouse to the jailhouse. The jailhouse. There, there's a, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a variety of things that the church can do in order to do justice. Um, our church, you know, and I'll just say here in Tacoma, here in Tacoma, we have a homeless problem, uh, like many uh-huh. other cities. Uh, and but I asked, I've asked myself the question, and I'm asking my brothers uh, this question too. What would happen if all the churches who who love the gospel, love Christ, came together and said, "We're going to solve the homeless problem in Tacoma"? Do we have the resources to do that? Absolutely. We absolutely have the resources to do that, but we don't do it because we're broken up into our little tribes and we're lacking the unity mm-hmm. and the focus. A lot of times we're, we're, you know, we're focused on building our ministries and getting bigger buildings and, and you know, and, and whatever, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of expensive trinkets that go with ministry. But, but, but when you look in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus is describing the judgment, he's going to judge us based on, I was hungry and you fed me. Mm-hmm. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. You know, the, mm. the things that he, he's looking at that he values um, are very different than many of the things that we as the church are valuing in ministry today. And so I, I think as we come together in greater unity in the body of Christ, protesting is one thing that we can do, but the, but the greatest influence that the church can have in a society is to be zealous in serving the community mm-hmm. and particularly those who are broken, oppressed, and marginalized. In the Old Testament, was the widow, the fatherless, the poor, and the immigrant. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing in those areas? Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, and that's, that's what the Lord has called us to do. And, and, and in one sense, this racial division is, is hindering us from doing justice in a very notable way for the Lord mm-hmm. in the country. Mm-hmm. Mm. And when, when, as we, as we heal, as we heal internally in the church, the, the society will be blessed because we will refocus on what's truly important. Mm-hmm. Mm. We've got work to do. We've got work to yes, do. We do. Ah. Yes, we yes, yes. <laughs> do. We do. Well, we are out of time, and I just have to say thank you so much. This has been very, very, very enlightening, most enlightening. And I just want to go back over uh, one scripture that we mentioned in our part two episode, and that is Second Chronicles 714. If my people who are called by my, my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so we've got work to do. And then the I Have a Dream speech, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King ended with free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free Mm. at last. And the word of God says in John eight thirty six. so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. So with Amen. Free indeed, yes. And so with that, let's keep our eye on the prize. Jesus Christ is our hope for today. He is the answer. Truly, he is the answer to the turmoil, chaos, and unrest. And that's my cry and prayer for our nation today. And I want to end with this quote. Martin Luther King Jr. says, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And that's exactly what we were saying. So with that, Mm -hmm. I want to say may God bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace. And we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. And, oh, one more thing. If you didn't hear Real Talk, What's Going On, Part 1, go back and listen to it. We broadcasted on September 22nd, and this was Part 2 today on October 6th. Pastor Lonnie. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I owe you big time. I want to have more conversations with you. And so look for an invite maybe in the year 2021 at the top of the year, particularly after elections. Amen. <laughs> so we might have Amen. more to talk about. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Okay. All right. God well, bless you, my brother. Be with you. All right. Take thank care. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye.